Welcome to the Best Science Medicine Podcast, BS without the BS. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 533rd episode of the Best Science Medicine Podcast. My name is James McCormack, and I am a professor with the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of British Columbia. I'm Mike Allen. I'm a family doctor and the director of practice support at the College of Family Physicians of Canada. I'm also an adjunct professor at the U of A. Uh, don't know how to set this one up, Mike, but I could just say premium. <laughs> you could, and you will. And, so I, today, and, I, and I have. And you have. So today's premium, what we're going to do is power through a couple really brief kind of five seconds, um, maybe a little more than five seconds, but not much more. Uh, synopsis of a series of articles just to give you a hint of what's and they're mostly all the story is I told you thusly if you watch the if you watch the Big Bang it's things that we've talked about before and have been reaffirmed yet again in the literature um, but it's it's they're new studies and I think they were they contribute to an overall understanding of a series of different um, medical issues and I just think that it's wise to keep appraised of um, literature as it comes out to see what also uh, kind of concurs with uh, past information. Yeah. And, and any, any new studies that come out that, uh, that go against what we've previously said, we ignore. Yeah. That will, of course, yeah, yeah. you hear what you want to hear, James. Yeah. Yeah. Or disregard yeah. the rest. Yeah. Otherwise, we look really bad. So no, we're just kidding. we don't. No, this these are is, ones where there is no other literature coming out. Yeah, showing exactly. Out. No, I agree. I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. I'm just kidding. So but, uh, yeah, it, yeah. So okay. So let's let's fire off. So the, one <laughs> of the first ones is the irritable bowel syndrome and FODMAPs. Now this has been covered in a tools for practice, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it found that uh, FODMAPs diet, uh, which you can get by googling FODMAPs. I think mm -hmm. Stanford has a really good one pager on it. Um, and, uh, we were suspicious of these guys originally because a lot of the research was done by the authors who also wrote a cookbook. So there you go. And, mm -hmm. and, and more research is coming out from all over the place and it's all showing the same thing. This is an yeah. RCT of 460 people, 459 to be exact, of primary care patients with irritable bowel syndrome. And they were given a low FODMAP diet or otolonium. Uh, bromide. We had to look up how to say that. Yeah, <laughs> we're not pretty yeah. good users of that drug. But James, what? Yeah, what kind of drug is it? You, well, you, uh, yeah, they, you know, they just call it a, a, an antispasmodic. I think it's got a bit of a calcium channel blocking properties in it, and it's it's used to decrease the spasms, you know, associated with people who get, you know, symptoms from IBS. And uh, and we'll talk about whether or not it has an effect. But why don't you say uh, what this study did? Right. Right. So this was given at uh, otolonium bromide at four or otolonium at uh, 40 milligrams three times a day. And the bottom line is at 24 weeks, those who were responders felt better. Um, they were 71% in the diet group versus 61% in the drug group. And the drug group, interestingly, I think was harder to stick to. And uh, there was no difference in the subtypes of IBS, which we often get quite hung up about. Mm -hmm. But there's really no no differences. So you've got a you've got um, a non drug intervention that's better than the drug. It's been shown to be better than mm -hmm. placebo. It's better than all sorts of uh, different diet types, etc. So this is just reaffirming yet again that in IBS we should be encouraging patients to at least try um, a FODMAPS yeah. diet. 
But it's important to realize that that's a 10% absolute benefit over a drug. So you're saying, you know, one in 10 uh, will have an improvement over if you use a, a dietary thing. And then, you know, we try to sort of, the, there was no placebo group in this arm, as you know, Mike, there was, it was just right. this drug versus FODMAP. And just doing a quick look at uh, whether or not this drug, how big of an effect this drug has, uh, how big of an effect this drug has on IBS symptoms, it looks about 10 to 15% of people will get a benefit from that. So, you know, most people... Over placebo. Yeah, over, over placebo. placebo. So, so yeah. So, and it's great that they actually compare it to a drug that has at least some effect is useful. Yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, it's getting better and better, the research. So it's this is primary care now, which is our patient population. It's actually comparing it to interventions. Yeah, yeah. I, I really think, like I said, that the evidence, there may come a big RCT that refutes all of this. But if you were to look at the totality of evidence right now, you would guess that this stuff is at least as effective as most of the things we do. And so, and it's, you know, certainly it's a bit of a pain to eat some diet sometimes, yeah. but it's probably better than a drug. Yeah. Uh, but I, but I do suggest that because it's a 10% improvement, or I guess you could probably argue maybe 20% if you were, if you were, uh, you know, looking at, at the overall effect, a lot of people need to then, you know, go back to where they were maybe and see if their symptoms come back. Because if it doesn't, you're now put yourself on a diet that you may or may not enjoy as much as your previous one. So I think anything to do with dietary stuff, it's always having, it's great when you get a response, but you should probably reinstitute a few things to see if it makes any difference. But, you know, that's, that's yeah, all. It, it, I, the benefit, James, is that most people are like that. They're going to gradually go back anyway. Yeah, yeah. Diet. <laughs> Even if they don't follow your more uh, direct approach, they're yeah. going to gradually yeah, yeah. move off the diet and then realize, oh, I need to get back on that. Yeah, especially if the FODMAP didn't allow ice cream or chocolate. <laughs> you know, James's diet yeah. to treat uh, – what does that treat, James? Everything, I think. Yeah, well, it creates uh, – it improves my mental disorders. That's funny you should say that. Homer made his own homemade Prozac, and I know. he can say it needs more ice cream. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we, okay, we, 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 we shan't get into that topic, but anyway, keep going. <laughs> okay, let's do steroid injections next. Mm -hmm. There's been lots of talk about these, and a lot of studies that are designed with a ridiculous premise um, up front, and that is that we'll give a single steroid injection into a joint, and then wait six months and see if it's still active. And I, I always ask people, if I gave you um, a medicine for uh, a chronic ongoing pain that you had, let's say a knee pain, and I gave you 500 of naproxen, and then checked just a single dose, and then checked your pain score a month later, would I be surprised if it wasn't working? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so why are we surprised that a single, there's this sense that a steroid injection must be curative. And I think if it's lasting weeks even, that's a that's a pretty good thing, and months particularly good. So in this study, 199 patients getting um, with OA of their hip this time, uh, getting advice alone or an intraarticular um, triamcinolone injection, so that's your corticosteroid, plus a little bit of lidocaine, or lidocaine by itself. So three arms to this. And we won't, uh, like the advice arm at, at between two and eight weeks, anywhere from zero to 6% of patients uh, reported improvement. At, uh, the, at the same time frame, two to eight weeks, 
25 to 17% of those on lidocaine. So you can see it's going down a little bit. And for those who got uh, corticosteroid with their lidocaine, it was 55 to 45. So James, you can see that the improvements there are somewhere in the range of 25 number needed to treat of four um, over, over the lidocaine, which would be your true placebo arm. Yeah, I think it could be a placebo or it could literally have an effect. It could have an effect. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, but it's, it's still having, even if lidocaine was um, having an effect as far as two to eight weeks mm -hmm. goes, it's not nearly the same effect that steroids plus lidocaine did. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. So that's really cool. And then, and then the, there is no way to predict how long that will last because, well, in, from my experience, and I'm sure with your experience, Mike, in some people, uh, depending on the condition, not ne not necessarily hip away, but you know, if it's if it's a, a bursitis, you can take it, and then it it could be a year and a half or two years before it comes back. Whereas, right. So that that would yeah. be a different injection. Exactly. Site. This is obviously a different. Injection oh yeah. The, no, I'm fully. I'm fully. Yeah, yeah. 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 You can you can do a knee injection and have patients come back, and my knee is still great after whatever it might be, two years. Yeah. But but if you look at clinical trial evidence, what you would say is the majority of patients get a response in that two to eight week, it's starting to wane by three, yeah. I'm sorry, two to eight yeah, weeks, it's starting to wane by three months yeah. or 12 weeks. And and then that's when many of them will need a re-injection again. But yeah. the, the idea that they don't work is because we're, we're checking so far down the time frame mm -hmm. that that the majority of people the drug is weared off, and so I think that this is just reaffirming that yes, again, like, and I can't, I can't even remember how many studies there are like this now. Steroids work, but they don't work beyond kind of three months time yeah, frame. No, they do their best at four to eight weeks. Yeah, and I know a number of people have uh, have asked me, and I've also asked personally for that like how often can you put do these injections and it is really hard to get data on this um, it is uh, so i spent a forever trying to sort this out and there was there was an observational st there's there's an rct where they injected people every three months and that was that was okay no real harm and then there's a an observational study that that was the rct that, that was and that went two years so eight injections total the other one was a cohort study where they followed patients with OA and rheumatoid in orthopedic and rheumatology clinics. And some of these guys were getting injections more often than every three months and going on for years and years and years. And these authors reported no real adverse events. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, now what, what do you take out of that? I, I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> the ones doing the injections, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I think you can comfortably use it probably three to four times a year. Yeah, I think I think probably, and then how many years before you need the surgery? You know, it's, yeah. it's we don't we don't really know, but there's and there's some evidence from a a potentially biased paper that was saying that you know people may be um, that that the injections might be causing some loss of cartilage. Again, not that that was potentially biased. These other papers don't necessarily show that. So. I think, and that loss of cartilage was in micrometers was something that you and I couldn't perceive probably over, over a year. So yeah, it's, it's very much unclear at this stage, but 
Um, I think it's it's a good intervention. It's highly effective compared to a lot of our interventions. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly what we said in our guideline, James, as you recall. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And, and relative, relatively inexpensive and, uh, and very unlikely to have systemic side effects. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like a lot of things, right? If you put the, if you put the medicine right right where you need it, it's often Mm -hmm. a better situation. And uh, I, 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 and I, I thought you were going to just bring up suppositories, but then I, I I didn't want to go there. It seems that you always want to go there. I guess the word premium. No, (laughs) I, I, I meant putting where, putting it where the problem is. Okay. I get you. I get you. Okay cannabinoids. Mm-hmm. Now, James, you may recall if we if we had a time machine and went back five years, there was talk that we were going to get so much good data when we uh, became more um, generous with our use of cannabinoids right. in medical care. Um, generous is not the right word, but no. you know the direction I'm going. Yeah, made, made it easier access. Yeah. And made and it, so, and, and, yeah. And, and, didn't, and didn't put people in jail for it. Yes. Well, that we, we won't get into the, yeah. the, the nature of that. Um, and I think you can tell by our tone how we might feel. Anyhow, let's jump, to, let's jump to the evidence of it as a pharmaceutical treatment. So this is uh, cannabinoids for pain. Now, the, um, the uh, Agency for Health Technology Assessment, these guys did another review of cannabis. And this is now five years since we did our uh, systematic review and there should just be a load of new information and understanding. Do you get where I'm going? I'm, I'm along for the ride. (laughs) There's absolutely nothing. Um, That's so (laughs) good grief. Get yourself a, um, a tissue box and cry as, as you feel comfortable. But there is really nothing. We said that there was about a 0.5 change in pain scales. That's what they found over placebo. Their improvement was uh, 38% versus 31% for placebo. That's the portions getting moderate reduction in pain. We found something completely different. We found 39% versus 31%. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, drastic changes yeah. It's it's fascinating to me because I hear all the time. Have you have you heard about this study? What's this happening? And nothing is really changing in nope. this area right now. And they found that there was really terrible evidence as far as uh, insufficient evidence is what they called it. They don't they didn't use the word terrible. I can't believe you did, James. By the way, well, I, um, I'm a I'm a terrible person. <laughs> you use that word generously. <laughs> Okay, uh, plant-based uh, cannabinoids, insufficient evidence for that. Those with low THC, insufficient evidence. So, And we talked about a, an RCT mm-hmm. a number of years ago that used the balloons and everything to get the just the exact amount of THC and CBD. And that, if anything, pointed to the fact that for pain anyway, the THC is doing the majority of the yeah, work. Yeah. yeah, and I don't, I don't know if you mentioned, I, uh, you may have, but I don't remember, it was neuropathic pain. Yeah, that was neuropathic. It was actually um, uh, fibromyalgia-specific pain. There were 20 patients followed for three hours. And many of you may say, that's the best study. Well, it's it's probably the best study would be up there as far as looking at the concentration of what's in cannabinoids of um, 
the different the different components and seeing how much um, each one is actually affecting pain. So it, it was it was very good for that perspective. As far as adverse events go, they noted they were drum roll common. Yes, again, <laughs> we notice sedation, dizziness, etc. And and so it's interesting because we're five years out and we're in the exact same spot we were five years ago. Yeah, yeah, um, and and again, if you. You, you, we are not always going to be right, but you could predict that because we already had some reasonable evidence showing what it did. And then it'd be really weird if this other evidence came out and said, no, it's way better or it doesn't have any effect. That'd be really unusual. So that's, you know, one of the approaches that we take in, you know, going forward with evidence is that if like, it's, it's why we say we don't need any more vitamin D studies. We don't need probably any more statin trials. No, is we know we the we know the answers. And e- even if you only have three or four studies, if they're well done, then you've probably got your answer. You've got your answer. You just, yeah. the reason we redo them is we're not happy with it. That's the reason. Or even more commonly, what we do is redo a, redo a systematic review of the evidence because we want to find a new answer. and. Um, okay, so the last study that I think we can quickly cover is a simulation study. And years ago, there were a series of studies that looked at how much time does it take to do primary care? And those put, if you if you look at trying to fit recommendations from uh, clinical practice guidelines into your day as a family physician and primary care practitioner, you would need around 21 hours um, every single day. And so these guys, uh, that, but that data is now about five or 10 years old or something. So we needed something a bit fresher. So uh, thank you to Dr. Porter and colleagues who published in the Journal of General Internal Medicine uh, just last year. And they did a simulation study where they looked at the amount of, basically, they looked at preventative care, chronic care, and acute care in taking care of a panel of 2,500 patients. So that might be a bit bigger, but in the US they have teams, et cetera. And, uh, but 2,500 patients, and they, they try to figure out how much time it would take to actually put each recommendation into their practice. And they said, and I quote, our calculations represent the lower bound estimate of primary care provider time. So they're guessing on the lower end of the range. Yeah, they're being as conservative as, as they could be. Yeah, so here's, here's what they found being conservative. It will only take a family physician 27 hours per day to do their job. Well, you could probably fit that in, right, if you didn't take lunch? Yeah, you could cram that in. I, I was going to start using a catheter and uh, just because <laughs> it was wasting too much time going to the bathroom. Oh, um, and you're over age 50. <laughs> yeah, so I have more frequent trips. So that mm-hmm. was the, it just made sense, James. You know, yeah. no, exactly. We're trying to stay logical here. Get emotion out of it. <laughs> so that, that was the, that was the overall, but they, they split it into different, into different. Yeah, uh, different categories. Yeah, so, and, yeah. and of course, there's a couple of sinners here that, that have a lot of recommendations mm-hmm. that are not necessarily founded on the best evidence. And one of them is preventative care. And this is things like counseling for activity, counseling for weight loss, counseling for all of that stuff that we're supposed to do. That is estimated at 14 hours a day. 
is how much it would take. And that's because there's so much to do and so many great things that you could do in trying to enhance people's lifestyle um, and uh, kind of health promotion activities. Right. Yeah. No, no. The next one is chronic disease management. And that's things that we're all familiar with guidelines like cholesterol guidelines, hypertension guidelines, et cetera. And that is, but, they, but, 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 but that also, they, it also included, uh, other, some, uh, psychiatric chronic disease. Yeah. Yeah. Like for sure. And, yeah. For sure. So it wasn't, it, it was it wasn't just, uh, surrogate marker stuff. Nope. No, no, no. It yeah, was, yeah. It, was yeah, it was management, long-term management of chronic condition. Acute right. care was only 2.2 hours a day. And then the last was managing your inbox. And that's all of your, what they mean here is all your labs, your reports, all of that stuff and making recommendations from those, etc. And that was 3.2 hours a day. So when it all totals up, it's 27 hours, just under 27 hours. Right. And if you did team-based care, so if you had a whole team around you um, taking care of these things, it would be 9.3 hours a day is what you could trim the family doctor time down if they could yeah. hand off a lot of the preventative care, etc. But you're still paying someone to do that. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's not like you're going to be saving a ton of money on that but but at least you know i think one could argue that you know nine hours is not outside of the realm of something that would be unreasonable to you know from a no it's not unreasonable it's just a matter of do, do we is that where we want to spend our time and is the is that where we get um the best bang for our buck uh in in healthcare because when we do something uh, we're deciding not to do something else, right? Like, right. We're, oh, yeah, uh, if I'm totally, yeah. So if we're if we're investing in a in a bunch of health screeners, then we're not investing in, um, you know, we're 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 not necessarily investing in other ways. And we've talked about this before in an article, James, you and I, and Tina wrote, Mike Colber and Scott Garrison wrote. It's called "Competing Demands and Opportunities in Primary Care," and it's all about where is our best time spent as far as making big impacts on patient outcomes and uh, the health promotion stuff unfortunately a lot of it doesn't have great evidence for hard outcomes alcohol right now is a really big um, thing in the media with the new guidelines and there's a lot of talk about there's been talk before about screening for alcohol use but we don't have evidence that the we have evidence that Screening will take people who are drinking slightly over what was accepted before. That was 12 drinks a week kind of thing. And we'll take them down into the normal range, more of them. But it won't necessarily change, you know, the risk of motor vehicle crash, cirrhosis, no. yeah. dying. It doesn't, there's no evidence that it changes those kind of um, more significant outcomes. Uh, so, yeah. and, and that's true of a lot of these type of things. We don't, we don't have evidence of a reduction in hard outcomes for this kind of social or health promotion stuff. Yeah. And, and Bart, I, I love the word that you take them down into the normal range of alcohol. I've never, <laughs> I don't know what that would be. <laughs> I say that's awesome. Yeah. Normal yeah. is not the, it was, it was the previously accepted. So thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. It, it from just the normal amount of smoking, James. <laughs> yeah. But I was, I was thinking, I was, if, if family physicians had to do 26.7 hours per day, I think the normal amount of alcohol might be a bit higher. <laughs> it would be way higher. But, yeah, but, so it, but it's important. But, 
but the, but the team-based care, you know, the team-based care is, is a really important thing because what you want, oh, obviously, sure. with any with any team, what you want is you want to get the people who are good at doing certain parts of that team-based care and let them excel at it. And, and oh, absolutely. You know, that, that, you know, that's the trick of, is to get the people who, who, who can do these things and, and, and uh, allow people to do what they're really good at. And yeah, because family you know, doctors that, are, are not great algorithm people. They're not mm-hmm. uh, doctors aren't period. They're not great algorithm mm-hmm. people where pharmacists and nurses are better kind of following an algorithm. And, and yeah, like in, 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 yeah, I mean, there's a, there's clearly exceptions to the rule, but, but I, Absolutely. but I totally agree with you. And, 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 and I think if we, we, I think team-based care is the solution to part of the, the problem, because I, you know, it, it, it would be oh, very, it very difficult to be a family, to just be a, a, a solo family physician with no sort of support. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. So yeah, I did like yeah. three of the quotes from this article um, mm. that was in the discussion. And normally, you know, we don't read the discussion, um, but we do read the conclusions and discussions for humor. And these guys provided a lot of that. Mm. So here's the, it wasn't intentional, or maybe they were writing this mm. with tongue in cheek. So this is one of their quotes. And these are all, you know, the kind of, you don't say, mm-hmm, this yeah. is a surprise, or you could say, no, something Sherlock. So, okay. Mm-hmm. So the first one is, Many clinicians are likely not completing specific services, not completing them according to guidelines, or working overtime. Wow. You don't say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the... this, well, working. This... You know, well, one of the things they have to do is slow down the work day because twenty-six hours is more than one day. Yeah, it is. And then here's the next one: it may also drive physician burnout. Who would have thought? Who would have thunk? Okay, so, and the last one is, if clinical guidelines do not consider the time opportunity cost of an intervention, the gap between guideline-based and clinical medicine will consi- will persist. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's legitimate. I think we have to be... Oh, for sure. Conscious, ...conscious of the fact that, uh, and, you know, we, we may actually, we may do a podcast on this at some point where... Chronic disease state guidelines do need to take into account how long it takes to actually do what they're suggesting. Um, oh yeah, there's a recent yeah. paper from um, uh, Victor Montori and colleagues who, mm-hmm. you know, where they call this out, and they're basically reminding us that guidelines need to start to talk about time needed to treat. Yeah, um, the, t- for, the TNT. The, yeah, TNT. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, it's it's a big deal. Uh, here is fighting like crazy to help improve that. We're mm-hmm. we're going the inverse. We look for ways to cut stuff from our to do list, mm-hmm. um, and I think we've been good at that. We're good at taking a ton of information and trimming it down, and we're also good at thinking about what are the things that we need to absolutely do in medicine, or or we should put more emphasis on, and those that require less emphasis. No, exactly. No. So that's great. So, so four really, you know, uh, uh, useful pieces of information, I think, Mike, uh, uh, you know, and that's why we called it premium. <laughs> that is why we called it premium. Yeah. So we, you and know, now things we can like, get back to our normal yeah. drink. <laughs> yeah. But no, you know, you know, but dietary stuff helps about 10% of people, uh, above drug treatment in this case, but probably maybe 20 to 25% of people with IBS steroid injections are still good. Cannabis 
doesn't do much uh, for neuropathic and pain. We don't maybe. know. Yeah, we don't know more than we did mm -hmm. five years ago. There's not nothing has changed. And and, uh, and primary care is difficult, and we yeah, and it's everybody wants to give an opinion about what to do, but we need to start to think about what do we, what can we trim. Yeah, and and I think trim is 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 always such a negative, a bit of a negative word. I think we, as we do with our with our guidelines, can we simplify it, yet yeah. maintain most of the goodness? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think and, that's the key. Yeah, for sure. And as you know, when we originally proposed the name simplified guidelines, many people were saying, "What? Well, well, because you're too dumb to make them complex?" And yeah, no. The trick, the, the trick is always it's easy to make things long and difficult, and that's easy. You can just throw a lot of words in a guideline, etc. It's easy. It's easier to make a 200-page guideline than it is to make a two-page guideline. No, exactly. And and I think we've said it before. You make it as simple as possible. But no more, no more simple. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I did not make up that quote. I think that was Einstein or something like that. But yeah, for sure. Yeah, excellent. Okay, great You're stuff. smarter than him anyway. You're smarter than him. Uh, well, I beat him in chess once. No, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, you are right. You are right now because he's passed away. But yeah, it was yeah. Around. Yeah, it would be, I, it'd be a lot tighter. Yeah, I almost got him in check when he was dead. <laughs> that was the only way you'd have a chance of yeah exactly anyhow um, we digress. yeah anything anything else you want to say mike or you're good no that's all good james okay thanks. so i think we'll just leave it at that so thanks as always for listening talk to you later uh -huh.